0: Tonight find Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6, we're going to be in a bunch of different places tonight. Uh, We're going to continue tonight to talk about theology proper. Theology proper is the doctrine of God. Remember what we said about it? Theos, Logia, and what did we say those two words put together means? Utterances about God, sayings about God or utterances about God. And so when we're talking about uh, the doctrine of God, that is theology proper. Uh, You have categories within theology proper, like ecclesiology would be the doctrine of what? The church. Eschatology would be the doctrine of what? Last things. Uh, Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Okay. Uh, Pneumatology, the Holy Spirit. So all of these are categories within theology. But theology proper would be the doctrine of God. And literally the word theology is theoslogia, utterances about God. I also want you to remember that when we're talking about theology, in, in the Bible always theology is pastoral. It's not simply academic, okay? The purpose of the Bible is what? pastoral so that we will know how to be saved and being saved to where to where we will know how to be discipled. Right? You with me tonight? Are y'all awake tonight? You're not? Okay. You what now? The podium's in the way? Okay. If I move it, I'm, I'll have to curl it this way so this side can see it now it's in your way (laughs) you want me to stand behind the board (laughs) okay Let's, uh, let's read Deuteronomy 6. We're going to refer to this later. Let's read this and have prayer. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you're going over to possess it that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now what we're about to read here is called the Shema, okay? The Shema, the Jews recite it anytime they are in their worship services. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. They were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What did he do? He referred to this, didn't he? Matthew 22. And he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, all of the law and the prophets really hinge on these two commandments right here. Love of God. Love of your neighbor. Let's get started in prayer. Uh, Who would lead us in prayer tonight? Volunteer? Rick? Amen. We're going to do some review and catch up and then move along quickly. I'm not sure what kind of discussion y'all might have had last week. But from two weeks ago, remember how, uh, how we said that the late A.W. Tozer once said, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. J.I. Packer In his classic book, Knowing God, said, I believe that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. The study of God is the most meaningful pursuit we'll ever have in life. Jeremiah 9, remember what God said? If a man's going to boast, he shouldn't boast in his riches or power or position. But what should he boast in? That he knows me, is what the Lord said. So it's the most meaningful pursuit in life. And also, as we study God, a proper study of God will unveil who we are, right? Remember Isaiah in the temple when he saw the vision of God high and lifted up on his throne and exalted? What was the next thought that Isaiah had? Woe is me. I'm undone. He thought he was going to die. Jesus said in John seventeen three. That if you really want to live, don't go out looking for life, but looking, but look rather for the knowledge of God. He said, "This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and your Son, whom you've sent." Uh, do y'all rem- you remember some of this from the other week? Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. It would scare me if you said no. What do we say first? God exists, right? Scripture assumes God exists. The first verse in the Bible is matter of fact. Genesis doesn't try to give us an apologetic, a defense for the existence of God. It simply proclaims His existence. And then we saw under general revelation or natural revelation out of Romans chapter 1 that we're told there that all persons everywhere know that there is a God. Paul says in Romans 1, God has has written it in every heart that we know there's a God. In fact, he says to the point that All men are without excuse. I like what one theologian said God doesn't believe in atheists. That's true, isn't it? Because God knows He's put a knowledge of Himself on the heart. And according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, what does a person have to do? They have to stomp down that truth, they have to suppress it, they have to deny it. But God's put it there. Uh, Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. And then uh, also we said, when we, when we talk about this God, what were the two words that I gave you to describe God? Transcendent. Whoops, I think there's an S in there. Which means what? He's He's above us, high and lifted up and exalted. And then what's the other word? Eminent. He's near. And we mentioned that you've got to keep those two in balance, right? You can't just concentrate on one to the exclusion of the other because if you do, you're going to have a a skewed view of God. We could go all through different. I've got verses written here. I won't take time to go through them, but we could go through all kinds of different verses in the Bible that talk about the transcendence and the eminence of God, some verses that talk about one or the other isaiah fifty seven fifteen isaiah fifty seven fifteen that talks about both in that one in that one verse, then we also said that uh, See, this is what I don't like about being out missing a week myself because I, I feel like I got to try to catch everybody up. Get back, back on the same page before we move on. God is knowable, God is knowable, God has revealed Himself. Through general revelation and special revelation. Special revelation being His written word and His living word. God is knowable. And we need to know God as He has revealed Himself in His word. Because if we don't know God as He has revealed Himself in His word, we're going to inevitably come up with a distorted view of God. Which will be nothing more than idolatry. And so we need to allow the scripture itself to define what we believe about God. But he is knowable. Uh, John Calvin said that God has to condescend to us though in baby talk. That's true, isn't it? He's an infinite God. We're finite. His communication has to be like baby talk. Uh We said that in God's Word as He reveals Himself that the revelation that we find in His Word is progressive. And I do not mean that word the way it's used in politics today to describe those on the left. That's not what I'm talking about. To say revelation is progressive, what do we mean by that? Builds on itself, more and more information. We don't know everything there is to know about God in Genesis 1-1 alone, right? As we read our Bibles through the Old Testament into the New, as we read from Genesis to Revelation, we see more and more and more that God reveals about himself. So, Revelation is progressive, okay? Okay. We also said, let me erase this so those behind me don't have to try to stand up to look at the bottom of the board. The next thing we said was that, uh, not to be contradictory to myself what I just said, that God is knowable. But we're going to see that God is incomprehensible. What do we mean by that? We will never fully know God. Because again, He's infinite. We're finite. Doesn't mean that God is unknowable. Because... We see in his word that he is. But it just means we will never fully know God. We will never know God exhaustively. In fact, the incomprehensibility of God means that we will never even know a single thing about God exhaustively. We will never even know a single thing about God exhaustively. Do you think we're going to know God exhaustively in heaven? No. No. I think heaven, one of the joys of heaven, is going to be continual discovery and learning. But we'll never know him fully. And... The reason being, that certainly the one that fits us for now uh, before heaven is because man is sinful. Can you read my chicken scratch? But also because of God's infinite greatness. Man's sinfulness and God's infinite gratefulness. But while it's true that God is incomprehensible, the believer should constantly be growing in their knowledge of God. As Paul prayed for the Colossians, that great prayer, intercessory prayer in Colossians 1, 9 and following. One of the things Paul prayed for in behalf of the Colossians was that they would be increasing in their knowledge of God. And then in 2 Peter 3.18, Peter closes out that letter by saying, But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And so one of the joys of the the Christian's life ought to be this lifelong adventure of knowing God that even extends into heaven. Okay, Uh, let's move on to talk next, I realize I'm still getting us caught up, batting down the hatches though, we're going to cover a lot of stuff fast tonight, okay, I want us to talk about the character of God. The character of God. We cannot say everything that the Bible says about God at once. We need some way to, to categorize and characterize what the Scripture says about God. And, and theologians have, have done this in different ways. But they talk about, Charles Ryrie for instance, talks about the different ways that men have categorized the perfections of God, the attributes of God. He, he talks on page 40, if you have this, theo- this is a very basic one, basic theology by Charles Ryrie. Uh, some classify the attributes of God or the perfections of God, calling them uh, natural and moral attributes. Some refer to them as absolute and relative attributes. Uh, My favorite, and and what we're going to use tonight, would be the communicable and incommunicable. The incommunicable and communicable attributes of God. We mentioned that the incommunicable attributes are are those attributes of God that belong to God and God alone. Now, folks, we know that any way that we use to classify the attributes or the perfections of God, it's... In the final analysis, it's going to be uh, inadequate in some ways, right? It's not going to be perfect, uh, but I think it does help to do this. Uh, So as we talk about the incommunicable attributes of God, those that belong to God and God alone, let's talk first about what is referred to as God's eternality, Millard Erickson refers to this as God's constancy, eternality. No, I'm 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 sorry. I messed up. Erickson talks about constancy going with the the next one. I got ahead of myself. But eternality. Write down Psalm ninety where Moses says, "From everlasting to everlasting, you are God." Now, man is going to be eternal in the sense of each one of us in here tonight and all persons will live somewhere for all of eternity however we are not eternity past there was a time that we were created right but it boggles your mind to think about there's never been a time that God was not. Mind-boggling, isn't it? Uh, Revelation 4 Listen to scripture there. The four living creatures. Each had six wings. And, and they were full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never ceased to say. Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and is And is to come. Who was and is and is to come. God's eternality. There's never been a time that he was not. There'll never be a time that he's not. Uh, Now, the next one. God's. Immutability. This is what Erickson calls God's constancy. What does immutability refer to? God is unchanging. God is unchanging in his uh, being, in his perfections, and in his purposes. Let me read a few verses to you. Psalm 102. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Uh, God's being, perfections, and purposes. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And then over in Malachi 3.6, remember what what the people of Israel were told, told in Malachi 3.6? Uh, The Lord told him, said, For I the Lord do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I the Lord do not change, therefore you are not consumed. And then over in James chapter 1 and verse 17... James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now folks, the the immutability of God, can you see my eye there? The immutability of God speaks volumes to man in in his worship of God. We don't serve a God who is fickle and changing. Uh, Because we can depend upon him, uh, we we can know that he deals consistently with man. God is not a moving target. Okay? Okay? Now, there is one group of theologians that I... Disagree with big time. Who want to dispute this? Have you ever heard of a group known as process theologians or process theology? You ever heard of that? Process theology. Yes, it, it's certainly related. Uh, Process theology, now open theism says things happen God God didn't necessarily know about. You know, oh, you know, God's learning or something. You know, God didn't know that was going to happen. Open theism, uh, which I also disagree with. But anyway, process theology says God is growing and changing constantly. Now, there's tons wrong with that. Now, what they base it on, they they try to say change is simply a part of existence. Change is a part of existence. This is the way they reason. And so, if God exists, if change is a part of existence, if God exists, then what must God be doing? God must be changing But there's two big problems with that. More than two, but two big, 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 big problems. Number one, it goes against Scripture. But then number two, just just from a philosophical foundation, it tries to define God's existence by our existence. You can't define God's existence by our existence. And so I, I think they're way, way, way off base. But uh, let, me, let me read something to you out of Wayne Gruden about the immutability of God. This is a long quote, but I think it's worth reading. So bear with me a moment, okay? He talks about the importance of God's immutability. He says, at first, it may not seem very important to us to affirm God's unchangeableness. The idea is so abstract that we may not immediately realize its significance. But if we stop for a moment to imagine what it would be like if God could change, the importance of this doctrine becomes more clear. For example, if God could change, change in His being, perfections, purposes, and promises, then any change would be either for the better or for the worse. But if God changed for the better, then He was not the best possible being when we first trusted Him. And how could we be sure that he is the best possible being now? But if God could change for the worse in his very being, then what kind of God might he become? Might he become, for instance, a little bit evil rather than holy good? And if he could become a little bit evil... Then, how do we know that he could not change to become largely evil? And there would be not one thing that we could do about it, for he is so much more powerful than we are. Thus, the idea that God could change leads to the horrible possibility that thousands of years from now, we might come to live forever in a universe dominated by a holy, evil, omnipotent God. It's hard to imagine any thought more terrifying. How could we ever trust such a God who could change? How could we ever commit our lives to Him? Moreover, if God could change with regard to His purposes, then even... Even though when the Bible was written he promised that Jesus would come back to rule over a new heaven and new earth he has perhaps abandoned that plan now and thus our hope in Jesus' return would be in vain. Or if God could change in regard to his promises then how could we trust him completely for eternal life? Or for anything else, the Bible says. Maybe when the Bible was written, he promised forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who trust in Christ. But if God can change, perhaps he's changed his mind regarding those promises now. After all, how could we be sure if God changes? Or perhaps his omnipotence will change someday. So that even though he wants to keep his promises, he'll no longer be able to do so. A little reflection like this shows how absolutely important the doctrine of God's unchangeableness is. If God is not unchanging, then the whole basis of our faith begins to fall apart and our understanding of the universe begins to unravel. This is because our faith and hope and knowledge all ultimately depend on a person who is infinitely worthy of trust. Because he is absolutely and eternally unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Now, somebody says, but doesn't it seem like sometimes in the Bible that God changes his mind? For instance, look at Jonah going and preaching in Nineveh. And the Ninevites repented believed God, God saved them, and the Bible says God changed his mind or repented of the evil that he had planned towards, towards them. How do we understand something like that if God is immutable? Well, there's something we've got to understand. God in his eternal decrees states that if man does this, then... This is what God's going to do. This, in, in other words, in, in, in God's sovereignty, God has told us and determined from eternity past what He will do given different situations. It's not that God changed, God, God's, God related to us differently. Somebody repents, comes to faith in Christ, God relates to you differently. You're his child now instead of his enemy, right? Did God change? No. You came to faith in him. So the way he responds to you now is different than before. Listen to what Gruden says about that. Again, I apologize for the length of some of these quotes, but I I do think it, it helps. He says, does God sometimes change his mind? Yet when we talk about God being unchanging in his purposes, we may wonder about places in Scripture where God said he would judge his people. And then because of prayer or the people's repentance or both, God relented and did not bring judgment as he had said he would. Examples of such withdrawing from threatened judgment include the successful intervention of Moses' In prayer to prevent the destruction of the people of Israel, Exodus 32. The adding of another 15 years to the life of Hezekiah, Isaiah 38. Or the failure to bring promised judgment upon Nineveh when people repented. Are these not cases where God's purposes in fact did change? Then there are other passages where God is said to be sorry that he had carried out some previous action. One thinks of God being sorry that he had made man upon the earth, Genesis six six, Or sorry that he had made Saul king, 1 Samuel 15.10. Did not God's purposes change in these cases? These instances should all be understood as true expressions of God's present attitude or intention with respect to the situation as it exists at the moment. If the situation changes, then of course, God's attitude or expression of intention will also change. This is just saying that God responds differently to different situations. The example of Jonah preaching to Nineveh is helpful here. God sees the wickedness of Nineveh and sends Jonah to proclaim, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The possibility that God would withhold judgment if the people repented is not explicitly mentioned in Jonah's proclamation as recorded in Scripture, but it is, of course, implicit in that warning. The purpose, the whole purpose for proclaiming a warning, to send the prophet to proclaim a warning, was to bring about repentance. Once the people repented, the situation was different. And God responded differently to that changed situation. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But what's he saying there? He's saying that was within the scope of God's eternal decree, even before they repented that that was one of the possibilities. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. But you're you're right. That was the whole reason Jonah didn't want to go because he knew that God was long-suffering and willing to forgive, and he didn't want to see the Ninevites saved. Okay, another another one of the incommunicable attributes of God. The impassibility of God. God is without passion. Now hang on a minute. Just just hang on. Let me, let me finish. The doctrine of the impassibility of God means that that God is not subject to suffering, pain, or involuntary passions. The doctrine of the impassibility of God or the passibility of God has to do with the theology of the suffering of God. Does God suffer? Does God suffer? Does God express and exhibit emotions the way we do? Does God have mood swings? The doctrine says that that all of God's emotions are rooted in His holy nature and they are always expressed sinlessly. They flow from His perfection. For instance, the Lord's anger is rooted in His divine justice. His justice is pure and right and holy. And so his anger is perfectly righteous. It's never capricious. It's never malicious. God never sins. The impassibility of God does not mean that God is cold. It simply means that God doesn't have passions like like man in the sense that God doesn't pitch temper tantrums. That'd be pretty scary to think about, wouldn't it? That God in His omnipotence would pitch cosmic temper tantrums. Now, the impassibility of God actually necessarily goes along with God's aseity. Now hang on, we'll talk about that one in a minute. Okay, talking about God's independence. Because God is independent, man's actions do not put God into a tailspin. Okay? I'll say more on this in a a moment. Let's get into the omni ones. Omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, the, the omni. Incommunicable attributes. I'm not gonna write those down, but but put those on your page. Uh, first of all, let's talk about God's omnipresence. Remember what King David said in Psalm 139? Lord, if I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I go as far east as somebody could go, you're there. Far west as somebody could go, you're there. Where can I go from your presence? And what was his conclusion? Nowhere. God's everywhere. Jot down Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Jeremiah twenty three, twenty three and 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And the obvious answer is what? Yes, he feels all of heaven and earth. Heaven, as 1 Kings eight twenty seven says, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. God's omnipresence. He, he's, he's everywhere. Now, this does not mean that part of God is in one place and part of him is in another place. As Gruden says on this, it seems more appropriate to say that God is present with his whole being in every part of space. And then there's God's omniscience. What's God's omniscience? The fact that he knows everything in one simple and eternal act. He fully knows himself and all actual and possible things. I want to read a great quote to you. Ryrie quoting um, A.W. Tozer. Talking about God's omniscience. He says, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter... And all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires. Every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth. Motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, He knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised, never amazed, never has aha moments. He never wonders about anything, nor, except when drawing men out for their own good, does he seek for information or ask questions. Isn't that great? Uh. Another one of your Baptist theologians from the past, W.T. Connor. Listen to what W.T. T. W. T. Connor says. But it is necessary in this connection to remember that man's acts are foreknown of God as free, not as determined. And an event may be certain in the divine mind without being necessitated on man's part. In other words, God may foreknow an event as certain and also as coming to pass as a result of man's free choice. Man does not have to do what it is certain that he will do. Right? God's omniscience. Hebrews 4:13 talks about we're all laid bare naked before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God doesn't have to learn. God doesn't have to sit at the feet of a teacher. Not only does God know all things, but he always chooses the best possible goals and the best possible means. To meet those goals. Uh, then, of course, there's God's omnipotence. What's omnipotence refer to? He's all powerful. Genesis 1 1 and following. God created simply by His Word. And do you remember at the promise of of virgin having a child? Mary said how can this be? And what did the angel say? With God all things are possible. Nothing is impossible with God. Uh, also God's independence. Let's talk about God's independence. I'm, I'm trying to hurry. Uh, God's Independence, also called his aseity. It's, it's also referred to as God's self existence. Uh, the word aseity comes from the Latin meaning from himself. Uh, God doesn't need us or the rest of creation. For anything, uh, listen to what Paul said in Acts seventeen—that sermon on Mars Hill, seventeen twenty-four and twenty-five. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, let me mention to you how something like this matters to us today. God's aseity says to us that, that God did not need us because he was lonely. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say something like, Well, God created mankind because he was lonely. He needed our fellowship. Well, he may desire our, our fellowship, but he doesn't need it. We don't, we don't complete... God. If you have an image of a God that mankind's got to complete, then you've got an image of an incomplete God. Folks, God is complete in himself and he enjoys perfect communion and fellowship within the members of the Godhead. Uh. No, God, God would be perfect, perfectly righteous and just to save no one because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. For God even to save one is grace. Aren't you glad God gives us mercy and not what we deserve? Talking about, uh, talking about God's aseity, listen, listen to what James Montgomery Boyce says here. Here we run counter to a widespread and popular idea God cooperates with human beings, each thereby supplying something lacking in the other. It is imagined, for example, that God lacks glory and therefore creates men and women to supply that. He takes care of them as a reward. Or again, it is imagined that God needs love and therefore creates men and women to love him. Some talk about the creation as if God were lonely and therefore created us to keep him company. On a practical level, we see the same thing in those who imagine that women and men are necessary to carry out God's work of salvation as witnesses or defenders of the faith, forgetting that Jesus himself declared God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. I I can't help but feel a little bit sorry for those who think that we complete God. Because if man completes God, I go back to saying, you have an image of an incomplete God. If an, income, if, if, an, if an infinite God is incomplete and needs finite man to complete him, then he's not the omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God that the Bible talks about. Okay, then there is God's unity or God's simplicity. Not use the way we use the term. We use simplicity in a negative way. And that's not what's meant. And and that's why maybe unity is the better way of looking at this. What this means is that, that God is not divided into parts. Yes, we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. In one passage of Scripture, maybe God's wisdom is emphasized. Another, Scripture, God's presence. Another, His power. But you, you, God's not like a piece of pie that you can take a slice of pie out and, and just take that and look at God from that angle alone. To see the biblical view of God, you've got to think about all of his attributes. You can't divide God up uh, into to pieces. Um, and again, I want to show you how we see people trying to do stuff like this today. You will hear some people talk about you would think that all that matters to some people is God's love. Oh, God just loves everybody. Everybody, God's gonna love, and you know, and, and they and they never they don't talk about God's holiness or his wrath or anything like that. All they talk about is the love of God. There's there's some old timey hellfire and brimstone preachers of the past that all they could talk about was what? God's wrath and that's all they ever preached about when you do that you fail to see the complete biblical picture of God uh Okay, he just, he just says what I basically just said. Uh, another one, God is invisible. Now, the Bible does record instances when people have seen outward manifestations of God. For example, Isaiah tells us that he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up and exalted. And then in Genesis 18.1, we're told that the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of uh, Mamre. So in these instances, God took on a visible form to show himself to people. Now we're not told exactly how God did this. Only that he did do it. And the greatest visible manifestation of all of God is found in who? Jesus. Yes. Yes. Uh But, but Jesus said in John 4, what? God is... What is God? God's Spirit. God's Spirit. Now, the Bible will use anthropomorphisms to describe God. What is an anthropomorphism? A human characteristic. To describe God. So the Bible will speak of God's heart. It will speak of his mouth, his arm, his finger, his eyes, his ears, his hands, his feet, his face, his countenance. So yes, the Bible uses anthropomorphisms to describe God and, and, and yet Again, Jesus said, God is spirit. Uh, now, let's, uh, I wonder if we have to, we haven't gotten to the communicable attributes of God yet. And we haven't gotten to talking about the Trinity. See, you didn't know what you were in store for tonight, Right? I guess we probably ought to hold those discussions to, to next week since it's almost 10 after. But anyway, we're going to, in the communicable attributes of God, we're going to talk about things such as God's love, God's holiness, God's mercy. Now, why are those things called communicable attributes? He shares them with us. He expects us t- to have those attributes in us. First uh, Peter 1:16 says what? God is holy. And so what's it say about us? You're to be holy for the Lord, your God is holy. First John 4 says that God is love. And so in the Bible, we see that Christians are to love. That we're even to love our enemies. That God is merciful. So in the Beatitudes, what's Jesus say? Blessed are the merciful, communicable attributes. You're not omnipotent. I'm not omnipotent. We're not omnipresent. We're we're not those omnis. We're not not self-existent. But we are to express the communicable attributes of God. So we want to talk about that some next week. Also, uh, we're going to talk about, if you're studying what the Bible says about God, what's another key area, another key, 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 key area you've you've got to look at? The names of God, the names of God reveal volumes about who He is and what He's like. So we're going to talk some about that, okay? The names of God, the communicable attributes, and also we're going to talk about the Trinity. So we've still got a long ways to go under the doctrine of God. We hadn't even gotten to man yet or salvation or the church or any of that yet, so stay tuned. Questions, comments? I went fast, didn't I? I decided tonight the video we could probably cover more tonight without it. right, exactly, oh yeah, exactly, even the attributes, the communicable attributes of God uh, we will not exhibit those perfectly the way God does now folks, again, when we talk about Theology and the church. It ought to be in the church, mainly, where we talk about theology. Not in the classroom, in the church. Because what are we to do in the church? We talk about God, right? It's, it's sad a couple of hundred years ago how theology got pushed out of the church and put in the classroom. And it was not so. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the church, theology was at home in the church to where church fathers and church leaders were also your main theologians of the day. The greatest thing that a believer can talk about is God. And that's all theology is. Theology is utterances about God.